a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Very happy to join to have you join us today as we uh, take another foray into wrong think. Turns out it's almost essential to uh, keeping your sanity in a time where, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff being utilized to separate us from reality. I'm, I'm pleased to welcome Caleb France back to the uh, program. Caleb is uh, program manager at Young Voices. He's also the host of the history in, in the uh, podcast. The podcast profiles in Liberty, rather. And uh, Caleb, normally we talk about, uh, you know, a specific figure or something. You have a topic today, though, that uh, has great relevance now that apparently has had relevance uh, numerous times historically, misinformation and censorship. That's right, Brian. Uh, I uh, I recently had an article uh, go up in, in Real Clear History uh, last week, and it, it's all about um, sort of the history of, of misinformation and censorship in the United States. And, and this is actually nothing new. It feels like, you know, this, this discourse that we have around, whether it be Twitter, uh, whether it be social media, uh, you know, Elon Musk is currently really driving uh, that, that discourse uh, really full steam. Uh, but uh, we've seen it with COVID and, and, and everything like that. Uh, but this is something that really it was one of it led to one of our first major crises in America. And, and that was whether or not uh, the, the First Amendment to the Constitution was actually going to mean anything uh, after only less than 10 years, really, after it was written and, and incorporated into the Constitution. Uh, and that is, of course, the story that I, I kind of tell in this article is about the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts under the John Adams administration of 1798. And while Today, we don't see any explicit threats of necessarily legal uh, threats uh, or laws being passed through to outright censor information or misinformation, so to speak. Um, a lot of the arguments are eerily similar to uh, what we saw then uh, as it is uh, today. So I think it's, it's incredibly timely and it's incredibly important to understand just why we said, no, even things like mis misinformation is necessary in a state of, uh, of, of freedom because you have to be able to, to use your own reason and your own, uh, your, your own thinking capabilities to be able to decipher between what's real and what's not, and not just rely upon the experts. Amen. Let's talk a little bit about what, to, what brought the Alien and Sedition Acts into being. Yeah, so I, I think you know there there is a, a lot of similarities there too between what uh, what we experienced today and uh, then um, there was uh, the biggest thing being uh, the threat of war with France on the horizon. Um, a lot of Americans after the French Revolution were becoming uh, especially weary of relations with France. Um, and a lot of Republicans or Jeffersonian Republicans, not necessarily Republicans as we know them today, 
um, they were very much uh, more sympathetic to to the ideas of of having uh, Frenchmen and supporting Frenchmen, uh, whereas the Federalists were incredibly against it because they were looking at the bloodbath that was going on in France. And uh, that scared a lot of people. Uh, fear was a major driving factor in uh, the eventual passage of these acts. And in order to uh, try to prevent the outbreak of war, um, the Federalists and uh, John Adams, President John Adams at the time, uh, decided to pass the Alien and Sedition Acts. The first three were involving immigration and, and aliens at the time. But the last one, uh, is, I think, especially chilling with the Sedition Acts, which it explicitly outlawed, uh, quote, writing, printing, and uttering uh, or publishing any false, scandalous, or malicious content. Now, what exactly that means is kind of where, <laughs> kind of where we, we uh, get into some uh, discussion and some areas of disagreement as, as they did back then. Um, and that is the catch-22, is that it was up to really the government, and what they decided was that meant that uh, you can't say anything mean about us, or we're going to, we're going to throw you in jail, or we're going to, uh, we're going to suspend your, your right to freedom of speech. And the Republicans, uh, most notably Thomas Jefferson, uh, looked at that and said, this is a direct violation of the First Amendment. Uh, but more importantly, it's a direct violation of the spirit that this country was founded on in the first place. There was a long drawn out battle uh, back and forth between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, excuse me, the Republicans, uh, many of whom uh, went to jail uh, because of this act. Uh, But fortunately, the Republicans at the time uh, won the day and they won the election in 1800. Um, And I think uh, Thomas Jefferson basically in his inaugural address said it best when uh, he said that the spirit of of free speech, essentially I'm paraphrasing, but the spirit of free speech is fundamental uh, to battling misinformation because only then can uh, good ideas be left to combat it. Wow. I'm shocked only if only for the reason, you know, the ink wasn't even dry. On the Bill of Rights, when this became an issue, you'd think, well, if they had some time to forget, they had some time, you know, down the road. But that was these were the actual people who helped to frame the Constitution. I guess I guess that uh, indicates we may all have blind spots, no matter our place in history. That's right. Yeah. These I mean, these were some of the very people who helped not only frame the Constitution, but the Declaration of Independence. Um, You know, John Adams was integral in making sure that. Uh, the Declaration of Independence passed, and that independence itself uh, passed. Uh, and yet, he was the person with his uh, signature on on these pieces of legislation. Um, and I think that goes to show that, really, no matter you know, we it, we kind of risk getting into sort of a cult of personality whenever we go uh, team red versus team blue. But really, none of that really matters. The only thing that really matters is the principles and the ideas. Uh, that are that are being espoused uh, and in the context of 1798 to 1800 those principles and ideas were about the freedom of speech the ability for reason to be left alone to combat any sort of false or malicious or, or misinformation um, and I think that's very much the same uh, same case to be said today
So I, I noticed you compared, for instance, you know, the Sedition Act to, to being deplatformed. I have to ask you, as, as you've seen this back and forth in our day, obviously the founding generations were able to work it out. How likely do you feel it is that we're going to be able to find a, a middle ground where, you know, people can, can work with one another and not to want to throw anyone who disagrees in jail, figuratively or literally? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the threat of jail is is not um, something that most people face today for 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 simply uh, saying something that may be false or saying something uh, that may be against the norm. But obviously, the the sentiments are very similar, uh, and that is basically what I was trying to get at at uh, in this article. Um, over the past few years, it's been a little discouraging, but I do think there is some light at the end of the tunnel here. I think a lot of people are kind of waking up to the fact that the gatekeepers who are saying this is what the right information is and just prove, <laughs> just having them uh, proven to be incorrect time and again and having to kind of chew their own words and, and walk back their own statements has done real damage to their own credibility. Uh, and I think more and more people are starting to wake up and starting to see that. Uh, so uh, in, in, in the spirit of, of what Jefferson taught, uh, talked about in his 1801 uh, inaugural address, I, I think that reason is starting to be left alone to combat uh, any sort of misinformation um, by itself. All right, let's let's take a moment here. And Caleb, tell everyone where they can follow you as a writer, also where they can follow your Profiles in Liberty podcast. Yeah, so Profiles in Liberty is available anywhere where you can get your podcast. Um, Season two recently wrapped up. I am working on season three, which uh, should be debuting sometime this fall. Uh, and then I occasionally write as well as uh, as we discussed today. Uh, this piece was in Real Clear History, so if you want to go check it out, I encourage you to do so. Um, and uh, in any of my other pieces would be published through uh, Young Voices. Okay, I will have links not only to the article we discussed today, but I'll also have a link uh, to connect them to your um to your podcast, and, and and so people can check this out for themselves. Caleb, I appreciate you doing this uh, this feature with me every other week. Thank you so much, and uh, I can't wait till the next time we get to talk. I, I want to get kind of a travelogue. You had a chance to go right to the heart of Europe. Maybe we can have you on the show to talk a little <laughs> bit about what you saw and learned yes. there. Yeah, absolutely. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Very happy to welcome Keith Kelsch to the program. Keith is uh, Keith is a man who wears a lot of hats here, probably as close to a Renaissance man as I know, Keith. But uh, you are the author of a marvelous book called The High Road, The Future of American Greatness. And you also are leading up some very productive efforts in southern Utah of uh, helping create a, a community, a sense of community, um, in, in a very productive way. I'm going to have you describe more about this. You also have a meeting coming up next week. Where do you want to begin? Talk about your qualifications or talk about the meeting. I think, I think I'm sensing the meeting's kind of urgent. Yeah, it's, it's an emergency basically that we are trying to wake people up. We 
I, I, I've been working on the concept of community for over a decade because I know that if you look at the animal kingdom, you look at all, all of our great successes in humanity, they always started with just small groups of people. And everyone's frustrated, everyone's upset at the establishment, the political apparatus, the system that we've got ourselves in. And I think the mistake is trying to fix that system or even take it over. What we don't understand in America is we have one of the most powerful rights that any human human being has ever had, and that's the right to peacefully assemble, to say, hey, let's lock arms and help each other out. And when I was a kid, I was in an elementary school, and my dad didn't go to Vietnam, but we locked arms with each other, and we would say, hey, hey, get out of my way. My dad just got back to the USA. And it was this kind of camaraderie that I felt, even when I was just six and seven years of age. And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew what it felt like. (laughs) And we've lost that art. We've lost that fellowship. We've lost what it means to be helpful to each other. And that's really what I'm all about. So I want to just make it clear. This is not just, you know, hey, let's get together and discuss, you know, ideas and philosophize. Some of that may happen in the course of what's going on. But but essentially, this is helping people to organize themselves, to focus on building not just what comes next, but what you want to come next. And there's, there's something you explain in your book that to me made a very key difference here. This is not a matter of, hey, come and learn what liberty is, as opposed to come and learn not just about liberty, but community as well as other things, how they work, and not just what they are. Help me understand why that's so important to, to understand the how they work versus just here's what they are. Well, first, let's define liberty, and liberty is the hand that adds value. So I'm creating a whole critical thinking program for a lot of homeschoolers, but basically I go into some detail. When you start looking at democracy and liberty and you actually look at the definition from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the OED, 1828 Webster's Dictionary, you you start finding active meanings, actual meanings to words that show action, not a status of mind, not a subjective internal you know, hope or dream or, or, or whatnot. It's an actual predicate action. For example, take democracy. Democracy is defined as the where everybody gets to take part. That's the phrase that you see in a lot of di- dictionaries, the ability to take part. Yeah, there's a vote in there, but we're all taking part. Well, we don't realize that power in our own system. We just, you know, go into a booth, vote, and don't realize that we have voice that should influence that vote or that somebody else has a voice that should challenge our vote. That's the real interaction that we're missing. And as a result, a lot of powers come together and they manipulate the vote because they've got all power over the voice. And I believe that they have to be brought back together. I'm not talking about a political movement. I'm talking about any kind of organization we create from here on cannot be centrally controlled and it cannot be top down, period. That is doomed to fail. And so it's an emergency because we have a meeting next Wednesday at the Washington County, uh, Washington City Library at 6.30. Come and just listen. And we're going to go over the complete Citizens Atlas. It's a complete different 
way to look at the belief systems that people have in politics. And briefly, in just a kind of a teaser, we see the far right and the far left, but there's something called the low right and the low left, and we never talk about that. And there's something called the high road. It's the high right and the high left, and we've completely lost what those beliefs are. And because of that, we're in a battle between the far right and the low left. That's the battle in America. And the far right is going to lose that battle until somebody takes the high road. We're going to talk about what that high road is. We'll talk about the history of the low left. It starts with Plato. It goes all the way down to Malthusianism. It goes all the way down to um, Hobbes' Leviathan. Just a complete history of what the low left has wanted for a very long time. And now they're in power, and here's what they want, and here's what we're up against. That's why it's an emergency, because this is not just a, 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 an idea on the right, far, you know, weird space out there in the field somewhere. <laughs> it's centers. It's center stage now. Yeah, we are. We are. There are people in power that actually want to kill you. They they don't really have any value for humanity at all. And we are now entering what the Chinese entered into, what they called the Great Leap Forward, but we're now the Great Reset. It's the same thing. Wow. It's the exact same thing. Keith, something that you have impressed on me over the years is how essential consent is. And, and that's, you know, the consent of the governed. That could be common consent in, you know, in in how much authority do these people, you know, that are telling us lock your business down or do this, you know, um, if, if there's legitimate authority or not. Right now we're seeing a pretty big push on their part. I mean, Dr. Fauci last week just was saying, you know, the court decision that struck down the mask mandate on airplanes, oh, she never should have been in the courts. This is a CDC matter. And it's like, are you saying you're above the law? Because that's, that's a lot what it sounds like. You know, it's, it's, here's, here's, a, here's a solution for that. We don't need to fight Fauci. All we need to do is take 150 of the best herbalists, naturopaths, homeopaths, surgeons that are all on the same page and say, we are creating the American Center for Disease Control, and it's completely created from the bottom up. We all support it. We fund it. And it's, it's a, an incredible dialogue of bottom-up dis, you know, consent. And we just launch it. And say, this is it. I'm sorry, we don't listen to the Center for Disease Control, which is funded by we know who. Mm-hmm. We do we listen to XYZ, which is funded by us. We don't realize that power. We just we just we just keep fighting the same system and complaining that complaining about that system imposing authoritarian on, on us without realizing the power we have. Make it obsolete. Just make it obsolete. Just ignore it and say, I'm sorry, but uh, you're not listening to the American. Uh, Center for Disease Control, which we created ourselves. We we think that we need a government to fund it, a government to support it, a government to lift up. We don't. Now, I'm not about launching stuff like that. My main my main concern is is that there's an awakening, meaning there's some bad stuff happening, and then there's a renaissance. We need to have both. We need to recognize that we need to see what things are happening, and then the renaissance right after that. Okay, tell people how they can get involved in this meeting on May 4th. May 4th is really just, we're having it every, the first Wednesday of every every month, literally. Okay. And right now it's at the Washington City Library. We'd love to have you come. We're going to have a new speaker every week, every month actually. 
and it's just somebody from our group, somebody from the community. We're not going to 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 some you know important person who's made a lot of money and thinking that they have a lot of understanding or great vision. Sometimes they have vision on business, but they don't have any vision on cultural strength and what makes for culture. That's that's from within us. So we have a new person speaking every every first Wednesday of every month. But if you're interested, come to our networking group. Uh, it's uh, every Thursday, 15, local Commonwealth. Uh, we'd love to have you. It's a business networking organization. We don't allow you to pitch your own business. We pitch that for you. We're growing. Pretty pretty amazing what happens at that, that networking meeting. Keith, I'm going to have you back on the show early next week to talk about this again because I really want people to come and see what you're doing and, and understand we have so much more power than we think. Thank you for leading out and thank you for organizing. I'll have links in the show notes to get people hooked up with you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a moment here to thank my sponsors, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Yes, indeed. If you are shopping for a home, you know that uh, there's a lot of other shoppers out there right now. That means it's a competitive market. That means you've got to be quick. You've got to have yourself squared away. You've got to know what you qualify for. Here's where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in with her decades, yes, decades of experience and a company that has the clout to get you the loan you need in a timely manner. She's the one you need to talk to. You can call Heather at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and any of my listeners living in the states of either Utah or Idaho would be well served to reach out to the Heather Turner team. Well, I don't mean I don't mean to uh, to cause alarm here, but uh, you are aware that we live in times of crisis. And nothing makes that more clear than the fact that uh, the uh, current administration in America, the Biden administration, announced yesterday it is launching a ministry of truth through the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, and, and wait, there's even more. Apparently, they have found the uh, the Karen of Karens <laughs> to head up this, this agency, all in the name of stopping disinformation. I've got uh, Jordan Schachtel's take on this from his uh, dossier substack. Ministry of Truth, Biden admin appoints serial propagandist to launch disinformation governance board at DHS. We're talking about a person by the name of Nina Jankowitz. Jankowitz? There we go. A Democratic activist who was appointed to lead the department, no friend to free speech absolutism. So when you hear talk about free speech, and you're all right, yeah, I understand there's a battle on about free speech. Just understand, there really is a battle in it. There is an official effort underway to throttle the free flow of information. And now that it's finding a home in the Department of Homeland Security, I'm guessing they're going to get a little more serious about it. Speaking up is about as easy as it's going to get for a while. Jordan Schachtel says, in showcasing its commitment to waging a propaganda war against American citizens who defy the current thing, the Biden administration is standing up a disinformation government governance board at the infamous security theater agency that is the Department of Homeland Security. 
He writes, the White House has appointed Nina Jankowicz, a Democrat activist and Ukrainian government consultant, to run what's amounts, what amounts to DHS Pravda. Other staffing announcements have not yet been made public, but this is the tweet that uh, Nina Jankowicz uh, sent out yesterday. Cat's out of the bag. Here's what I've been up to the last two months and why I've been a bit quiet on here. Honored to be serving in the Biden administration and helping shape our counter-disinformation efforts. Now, a self-proclaimed disinformation and democratization expert, Jankowitz has spent the last several years at a variety of left-wing think tanks in addition to doing consulting work for the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry. That's according to Politico. And she has a long track record of engaging in hyper-political activity for her benefactors, having engaged in several propaganda campaigns targeted at President Donald Trump and others. Most notably, she falsely labeled the infamous Hunter Biden laptop as Russian disinformation and repeatedly claimed that there was evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. And from here, he just includes a handful of her greatest disinformation hits. So one of them was uh, so disgraceful, the questions concerning the Russian witch hunt were leaked to the media. No questions on con- on collusion. Oh, I see. You've made up a, <clears throat> a phony crime, collusion that never existed, and an investigation begun with illegally illegally leaked classified information. Nice. This was a, treat, a tweet from Trump. Her response, narrator, there were, in fact, many questions about collusion. Yep, she's a spinmeister, all right. Here's a tweet from Rusty Weiss. The Biden administration's new executive director of the Disinformation Governance Board, Nina Jankowitz, cast doubt that the Hunter Biden laptop, confirmed to be real by multiple outlets, actually belonged to him. She called it a Trump campaign project. Here's another tweet. She talks about back on the laptop from hell. Apparently, Biden notes former 50 national security officials and former five former CIA heads that believe the laptop is a Russian influence op. Trump says Russia, Russia, Russia. And finally, here's one more. Biden, this is Jack uh, Posobiec, saying here is Biden's new disinformation commissar claiming militarized Trump supporters were going to show up to the polls with weapons. This is from, uh, this is from yesterday, actually, in which C- CNN Newsroom was quoting Nina Jankowitz saying, I think there's a greater a general concern about Trump supporters potentially showing up armed to the polls and these sorts of voter suppression, that's illegal everywhere. Anything like that ever happened? I don't, I don't remember anything like that happening. So back to, to Jordan Schachtel's story. He says the self-proclaimed disinformation expert also seems to have a big issue with people she deems free speech absolutists. This is a tweet again from uh, Nina Jankowicz saying, Last week I told NPR, I shudder to think about if free speech absolutists, absolutists were taking over more platforms, what that would look like for the marginalized communities, which are already shouldering disproportionate amounts of this abuse. Uh, apparently her conversation with, uh, with uh, Michael Martin or Michelle Martin was on how women face disproportionate attacks online. One expert shares some of the details. I guess they're talking about that reporter, what's her name, Taylor Lorenz, who goes around doxing people and then gets a little taste of her own medicine and finds out, that, hey, that's not that much fun. <laughs> oh, man. And here she is. Uh, here's uh, Nina Jankowitz talking about uh, when you clicked, uh, I agree to the terms of service. 
You know, that's uh, that's when you gave up your right to free speech. Free speech is not and has never been guaranteed on private platforms. Now, she's also an unestablished, unelected mask enforcer, enforcer rather, known to lecture random people in the street about the need to comply with the safety regime. So this is Nina Jankowicz responding to a, a tweet about Boris Johnson announcing that mask wearing is mandatory again in England on public transport and in shops. She says, good. I totally avoided public transit when I was in London last week because of lax masking. Also got into an argument with an English woman across from me on the Eurostar who refused to put her mask on. So, yes. Karen, I believe the uh, title does fit her. But now they've put her in charge of the Ministry of Truth. Jordan Schachtel says, whether we've reached clean, peak clown world yet remains to be seen, but it feels like we're getting close. She shudders to think about if free speech absolutists were taking over more platforms. It's not the absolutists that scare her. It's, it's the idea that there would be unrestricted discussion. The people would be able to freely share points of view, ignore the ones that they don't like, and embrace the ones they do. I'm not encouraging you, by the way, to go spend more time on Twitter, but um, what little time I've spent on Twitter in the last couple of days since uh, Elon Musk's uh, takeover or his, how can I put this without making it sound like he's a comic book supervillain, but since his his, uh, purchase or his offer on Twitter's been accepted, a lot of the throttling of information has been relaxed. And it's astonishing the number of people who are like, holy cow, you know, I jumped 50,000 followers in two days or more. Something hinky was going on there. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, this is that these are people who you should listen to every word they say and hang on every word. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't hang on anything that I say either. But you can't choose if you don't have the opportunity to look at different points of view. And that's that's the whole point behind free speech. Yes, there are people out there who say things that I find reprehensible. There are people out who are out there who just are toxic. But I am not going to be one to clamor for government or any other officialdom, even in court, the corporate world, to try to, to, to squeeze down on them and keep them from, you know, saying things that I don't agree with. Why? Because... I have things that I'm trying to say as well. And there are people out there who I think have very worthwhile messages. And you can't allow that kind of official throttling of the flow of, of information and speech to take place without damaging the good as well as the bad. Oh, Brian, you're probably just oversimplifying things. And maybe I am. But I don't think so. I mean, we give a lot of lip service to free speech. Okay, well, we, I give a lot of lip service to free speech. But I really think that it's, it's the key. With all the crises that are going on, all the different uh, plays for power, all the ways that people in authority are trying to assume a little more control of your life, you know, for your own good, you and I have got to be able to speak as clearly and freely and unequivocally as possible to the people around us. And they don't want that. The people in power do not like this. It threatens them. And so now in the name of fighting disinformation and misinformation, they are unleashing a modern-day ministry of truth, headed up by someone who appears to have that uh, Karen way of looking at the world. Come on, what could possibly go wrong? I'm sure it's going to be fun. And we'll all be so safe. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. You can visit their website at DixieChiro.com. This is Dr. Ward Wagner. If you are suffering from car accident injuries, if you have neuropathy, if you have bulging herniated discs, first of all, you know what pain is like. Secondly, you can get relief. Talk to Dixie Chiropractic. They've got a couple of specials that I think would be a great way for you to get acquainted with them. This is particularly for my listeners in southern Utah. Contact DixieChiro.com for neuropathy. Ask about the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. If you're dealing with bulging herniated discs, here's a $99 intro special treat with two treatments plus massage. Get a hold of Dr. Ward Wagner at DixieChiro.com. All right, I was on a little bit of a tear in the last segment, and, and I think rightly so. But uh, nonetheless, I want to give you something positive for this, uh, this last segment of this hour. And this is uh, Barry Brownstein's latest article. I love this because a lot of people think they know what liberty is. Very few, though, can explain how it works. And Barry Brownstein shares some of the marvelous wisdom of Leonard E. Reed about how the threat to liberty is coming from inside the house. He says, you might be, as I am, alarmed about the future of liberty. And he asks, how deep are the roots of liberty when so many submit to authoritarian measures in response to COVID and approve the use of coercion against those less eager to comply? Unable to visualize alternatives, public acceptance of top-down coercive solutions to COVID demonstrates a willingness to sacrifice liberty for the promise of safety. But Barry Brownstein says to restore liberty, our understanding of liberty needs to deepen. The prolific author and educator Leonard Reed is most famous for his timeless essay, I Pencil. In one of his earlier works, Students of Liberty, based on a 1950 talk he delivered to economic students at University of Pittsburgh, Reed clarifies in simple terms what liberty is and the mindset that must be restored. Reed writes, Liberty... The absence of coercion or violence is not readily comprehended. He explains that the absence of coercion and violence is not readily comprehended because relatively few among those who've lived on this earth have been able to visualize any order in society or any progress by those who compose it, except as the will of some has been imposed on the actions of others. Now, tellingly, Reed adds, history for the most part is a record of violence. Present-day talking and writing, history in the making, for the most part is an argument for the rearrangement of the rules of violence. So history is not made merely by governments and bureaucrats, but by our fellow Americans. And Barry Brownstein says the results of this Rasmussen poll conducted earlier this year reveal a readiness of the American public to rearrange the rules of violence. Quote, 59% of Democratic voters would favor a government policy requiring citizens remain confined to their homes at all times except for emergencies if they refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Nearly 48% of Democratic voters think federal and state governments should be able to fine or imprison individuals who publicly question the efficacy of the existing COVID-19 vaccines on social media, television, radio, or in online or digital publications. 
45% of Democrats would favor governments requiring citizens to temporarily live in designated facilities or locations if they refuse to get a COVID-19 vaccine. 47% of Democrats favor a government tracking program for those who won't get the COVID-19 vaccine. And finally, 29% of Democratic voters would temporarily support or would support rather temporarily removing parents' custody of their children if parents refuse to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Now, Barry Brownstein says, look, to be sure, a clear majority of all likely voters oppose these measures. Yet a terrifying wind of justifying violence is blowing, a wind that an alarming number of voters of all stripes are welcoming. Having aroused primitive fears... Dr. Fauci, Bill Gates, presidents and governors supported by mainstream news and social media censorship purported to assume responsibility for our health decisions. And people felt relieved from the burden of exploring what they can do to boost their immune system and sustain their health. Again, here's a quote from Leonard Reed exploring the consequences of outsourcing personal responsibility. Quote, once the reliance on self is removed, once the responsibility for a portion of our being has been assumed by another, be that other a person, a set of persons, or the police force, we cease to think about or apply our ingenuity to the activities thus transferred. When the agency to which the transfer is made is the state, an agency of coercion, is it any wonder that creative thought diminishes to near non-existence? End quote. Ooh, that one hurts. It hurts because it rings true. Barry Brownstein says we become convinced that there are no other solutions, so we stop looking for them. Reed explains, creative thought is abandoned by man as a free and thus a creative agent and assumed by man as an agent of coercion. Coercion by its nature is incapable of creativeness. So no wonder with the government in charge, top-down coercive solutions are prioritized and efforts to discover effective treatments for COVID are actively thwarted. He says, if you're tired of being on the defense, opposing endless coercive measures, or want less talk and more action, reads Students of Liberty is a balm for your liberty-minded soul. But this isn't a call to organize and elect the right people. The movie When a Stranger Calls provides a metaphor that exposes the human tendency to see our problems as far removed from where they really are. In the movie, the psychotic killer calling the babysitter was not far away. The calls were coming from inside the house. And the real threat to liberty and the means to restore liberty are closer than we think. From here, Barry Brownstein talks about love versus violence. He says those Rasmussen poll results might trigger a defensive response. To bloody hell with those who would trample on our rights. But he says, think again. Some of those with illiberal views are our family members, colleagues, and neighbors. And Reed points us to a fundamental fact of human existence. That is, humanity is independent, or interdependent rather. He writes that our existence on this earth beyond a primitive state requires a recognition of this fact and a knowledge of how to deal with it skillfully. Reed observes how to deal with it, meaning interdependence, skillfully, is where divergence of opinion in social affairs originates. This divergence takes the shape of two diametrically opposed recommendations. One commends life in accordance with the principle of violence. The other commends life in accordance with the principle of love. Now, when we think about violence, we think of criminals or governments waging wars. Reed asks us to broaden our understanding of violence and reflect on the many ways we support violence. Mandating funding government programs we don't support with our tax dollars is an act of violence. 
Violence includes actions taken to prevent people from making peaceful decisions on how to use their energy and property. Now, Reed is clear. The cause of our ills is a reliance on the principle of violence. Violence breeds violence. The more of it we practice, the more of it we'll rationalize as justified or even needed. Barry Brownstein points points out and asks, will the path in our country, or will the path our country is going down lead to the violent horrors we're witnessing today in Shanghai, where over 25 million people are trapped in their apartments with little food? Now, Reed writes, the alternative to violence is love. Now, he's not referring to romantic love. Instead, he recognizes the virtues of love. Saying love, as used here, refers to the application of the kindly virtues in human relations, such as tolerance, charity, good sportsmanship, the right of another to his views, integrity, the practice of not doing to others what you would not have them do to you, and other attributes which result in mutual trust, voluntary cooperation, and justice. But Reed also says love only prospers in liberty. He says love generates and grows among free men only with difficulty among men ruled by the principles of violence. As violence begets violence, so does one personal act of kindness beget another. It is then in liberty that man's natural aptness evolves toward its potentiality and its goodness. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Reed sees the truth. Love prospers in liberty. It's also true that liberty prospers only with love. So only with love will you accept the principles of a free society. The rights and freedom you cherish for yourself are only possible when you cherish the same rights for everyone else. It's twisted to believe you have the freedom to choose a medical procedure for yourself and at the same time believe others should make the same choice as you. Now, there's so much more to this article. I'm going to leave it for you to discover. Barry Brownstein finishes by saying, look, it's easy to despair. Fearing the outlook for liberty has never been bleaker. Reed might say the outlook for liberty has never been greater. Why would he say that? Awaken to the erosion of liberty, there is more grist for the mill to facilitate our learning than any time at any time in recent memory. We have more opportunities to become advanced students of liberty. Each of us answers the call. As each of us answers the call, rather, the threat to liberty will diminish. And Barry Brownstein says, all are called, but are enough of us ready to heed that call? Well, he says the future of liberty depends on our answer. See, I don't take talk about calls and callings lightly. I think it's a real thing. And if I can make you just a little uncomfortable, I don't think you would be listening to this program if you didn't feel a call at some level to be part of the solution and to stand up and to make your influence felt. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where I actively encourage people to engage in wrong think, which does not mean agree with me. That's one of the beauties of wrong think is you don't have to agree with anything I say. 
I'm going to present the best information I can find for your consideration and ask you to just, you know, take a look at it. If it it fits, if it answers some questions for you, makes you more solid in your beliefs, that is up to you. But I'm encouraging everyone within the sound of my voice, think as clearly and independently as you can. Challenge the narratives. There's a lot of... uh, you know, new speak, and there's a lot of language and thought control going on among us, and it's becoming official. As you may have heard in the other hour of the show, uh, we're, we're absolute, absolutely seeing a ministry of truth being established in the Department of Homeland Security. You want to speak and think freely? You're going to have to be willing to stand up and take the hits for, for being willing to do so. I have great sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and Govern Your Crypto. All right, let's, let's talk about stories. I've heard it said, and I do believe, that the people who tell stories, the storytellers are the ones who rule the world. And, you know, don't take that too literally to the point where, okay, once upon a time, everybody voted Republican and everything was great. That's not the kind of stories I'm talking about. Great stories have the power to sustain culture. I've got a great article here. Ruben, thank you for sharing this one with me. This is from Tom Luongo. And it's all about Disney's demise because of their decision to go woke. Tom Luongo says, we live in an age of maximum arrogance. When you watch companies with some of the most marketable brands in the world torch them on an altar of political correctness, it's easy to think of them as just stupid or going with the flow of history, but they aren't. Because not only do we live in an age of maximal arrogance, but we also live in the biggest self-created false realities in human history. And it's the height of irony that the biggest brand in storytelling, Disney, has succumbed to its own arrogance and self-delusion, becoming trapped in a false reality that Disney should dictate the direction humanity should accept. That's what lies at the heart of Disney's troubles today. It arrogantly believed it has an obligation to decide what is and what is not culturally acceptable to a majority of its customers. And it completely misread the room in thinking a large percentage of its business comes from the insufferably woke suburban moms who are just as screwed up as the kids they've raised. Now, the good news is Disney got the message loud and clear that they are not the arbiters of when it's appropriate to groom children for adulthood. But the bad news is they may not have heard it. Social media, <clears throat> political pressure, and the, the massive extended echo chamber that's California politics suffused Disney's board and its corporate culture with the mind virus of egalitarianism, eschewing any basic faith in humanity itself. And since they've rejected all forms of God or submission to a higher authority that wasn't man-made, Disney decided it was time to undermine all of its properties by coming out of the closet, as it were. Tom Luongo says, hey, Disney chose poorly. Now, he talks about uh, about how he's a huge fan of Philip K. Dick. Dick wrote dozens of short stories and at least a dozen important novels focusing on this very problem of false realities leading to a crisis in faith. In Dick's work, those false realities were tangible. You could visit them through drugs or meditation, meet your analog from an alternate universe, or by nearly dying, get trapped in a hellish landscape of someone else's design. But he says, in reading these tales, we realize they exist as metaphor, like all stories do, to teach us lessons about how to navigate our conflicts and emerge transformed into something better. 
And for all his wacky situations and conceits, Phil Dick's stories are just about the most important or all about the most important issues we face. Empathy, overcoming shame, pride, justifying violence, selfishness, justifying nihilism. Dick's protagonists are all suffering basic crises of faith. The modern world has let them down. It's led them on a false path, experiencing deep midlife bouts of anyway, as their carefully constructed coping strategies to numb their pain are shattered. And like all great storytellers, Dick told the, the fantastic, chose the fantastical and the weird, not just to hide real human stories as enticements, but Tom Luongo says also, as I'd argue, to make them far more memorable than they would have been otherwise. UBIK, for example, has been hailed as one of the greatest novels of the 20th century and whose ideas populate hundreds of derivative works of Hollywood. It's what we will remember him for. By contrast, all of his real-world liter real literature, which covered the same topics, couldn't get published during his lifetime. So, Luongo saying, the alchemy of fantastic with the mundane is what makes for great storytelling. It's what made Disney into Disney. It's what gives Philip K. Dick's science fiction work its heft and power. It's what makes stories something worth retelling. Taken to its extreme, stories and legends become something larger than individual chapters. So in an oral tradition, the stories handed down would morph to suit the challenges of the day. Their sequels can and would contradict what came before. Continuity wasn't a thing. It wasn't important. What was important was the underlying lessons, the underlying truth. You read any anthology of ancient stories, and he says you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So Philip, Philip K. Dick created novels like Ubik and The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch to be purposely, purposefully insolvable puzzles of nested realities. They can be seen as examples of modern storytellers submitting themselves to the higher power of stories themselves, knowing the puzzles they present bring people back to them over and over. And guess what? You get exposed again and again to the deeper message, the deeper meaning. It's what happened to, to Tom Luongo. He says, I used to reread Ubik every June 5th, the day the novel opens, because the book is that important to me. It's why we watch beloved movies multiple times. <clears throat> you may have come for the heroes or the lightsabers, but you come back for the story. The point being is that stories which, ha which, which last have resonance and speak truth. Some become so big they grow beyond their origins into something that can't be untangled. They become myth, legend. When stories in the Bible or the Norse myths were being passed down through the ages, there wasn't any care about continuity, only imparting con the lessons to the next generation who heard them. And Jordan B. Peterson has actually made the point that it's lack of continuity, lack of logic that makes creation myths capable of sustaining a culture and a society from falling into chaos and civil war. In fact, he frequently uses the example of the Egyptian stories of Osiris, Set, and Horus as the big example, which sustained ancient Egypt apparently for thousands of years. I mean, even Christianity can't claim that yet. And this is the responsibility Disney took on when it first acquired Pixar Studios, then Marvel Studios, and then, most importantly, Lucasfilm. It already owned ESPN and ABC. It was now a story-generating conglomerate so large that it owned all the modern myth-making franchise ex except DC Comics. And with its overtly dipping its wick into the obvious political fray over Florida's don't-say-gay law, it betrayed that responsibility as a repository and generator of new stories capable of becoming myth to its core. Disney, who used to stand apart from Hollywood's descent into to depravity and violence, became the ultimate symbol of it overnight.
Now, from here, he goes into the war over Star Wars, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna delve into that too much because, frankly, I'm just coming up on the end of the segment here. But the Star Wars, the Star Wars storylines and universe have proven to be immensely popular, and it's because of the stories that they tell. He says, embedded in the core of Star Wars is the power of stories to sustain culture. The, the mythology of the Jedi's impartiality helped sustain the Old Republic for a thousand generations, even as they became hidebound and dogmatic. George Lucas built Star Wars on this idea, a mythology for a culture losing touch with its old traditions, and early returns seem to indicate he was successful. Star Wars will have to last a hundred years as a playground for storytellers to acquire even a smidgen of that power. Now, canonically, the collapse of the Jedi and the cynicism of Luke Skywalker as expressed in The Last Jedi is what spurred directors like Favreau and Filoni to create the Mandalorian and heal the divide in the fan base. Mando's story is the opposite of, of Luke's, a bad man driven by faith in an ancient creed to protect the innocent Grogu or baby Yoda. That faith leads him to self-sacrifice, but also challenging the creed's self-negation to plant the seeds of spiritual rebirth in the post-Empire chaos through which hope springs in all of us. So this is the way has joined May the Force Be With You as a rallying cry of a generation inspired by a story to bear the burden of rebuilding a fallen world takes both fortitude and faith, hope and strength. And it shows you just how far Disney has fallen as a company that it succumbed to madness about race, sex, and parental rights in service of false realities rather than seek the truth inherent in its own stories. I love this last line. Tom Luongo says, the only way out of the crisis is through it. He's right, by the way. We're not going to avoid the coming crises. There's many of them. The best way is to move forward, and the best way to find the courage to do that is to know who you are and what you stand for. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thanks for being part of our audience today. Always makes me happy to see our numbers of wrong thinkers beginning to grow, albeit so slowly. I'm convinced it's it's not so much that uh, the message isn't uh, worthwhile. It's just that people are very slow to come to the realization that, uh, you know, they've got to take that ownership of, of their own thinking. There's still a lot of folks, and I mean good folks, freedom-minded folks, people you'd want as your neighbors and your friends who believe it's somebody else's responsibility to make sense of all this for me. But freedom never tastes sweeter than when you've learned to uh, to dig in and do some of that heavy lifting for yourself. Let me uh, let me share with you a few thoughts on free speech, since that seems to be one of the the central themes today. We're seeing a lot of attacks on free speech, and it's not just a guilty pleasure enjoyed by those of us with lots of privilege, right? Somehow I get the impression that a lot of the folks in power think, well, now free speech is fine if you have the privilege and you have the leisure time to engage in that kind of stuff. But no, you can't have a functioning nation without free speech. Chet Richards has an excellent column on AmericanThinker.com. And he starts by talking about how a dozen of us were seated on either side of the long dining table. Present were writers gathered from across the nation and around the world. He says, beside me was a lady from Nigeria. Facing me was a Romanian. 
The woman next to her had flown in from Sydney, Australia. This was a celebratory supper after a long day of book signings at the Los Angeles Times Book Festival, a major literary event. Now, Chet Richards says, The conversation among this group of lively intellects was a sparkling delight, lighthearted and witty. Only for a brief while did it turn to the fashionable liberal topic of the moment, the benefits of censoring free speech. I said nothing. He says, why spoil the celebration? But he says, it's odd that the notion that speech must be censored is the current fashion of people who call themselves liberal. Liberalism is supposed to be the philosophy of individual freedom and free speech. Well, language evolves, and true liberals are much more likely to be found in the ranks of conservatives than those left of center. And he says, there really are true liberals on the left. The people seated around me, he said, certainly were. But unfortunately, they live in an almost impenetrable fortress of specious certainty. Conservatives swim in a sea of progressivism, so they are well aware of the thinking of the left. But the converse is not the case. He says, in my experience, people left of center have a fantastically distorted concept of conservative ideas. I suppose this is because they mostly listen to one another, to the progressive media, and to their thought masters, not to real conservatives. Perhaps, too, they fear they might like conservative ideas and so become outcasts. Now, the current leading thought master is Barack Obama, and despite his pretensions of being liberal, he's not. He is something dangerously different. We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America, he so famously said in the last days of his presidential campaign. Well, you don't, form, you don't fundamentally transform something you love. You fundamentally change what you despise. Obama later realized he'd given the game away. In a subsequent interview with Bill O'Reilly, he said, I don't think we have to fundamentally transform the nation, but then immediately changed the subject. Now, once again, he's at it. In his April 21st, 2022 keynote speech at Stanford University, he called for big tech censorship of speech in cooperation with the U.S. government. He complained about online disinformation, conspiracy theories, raw sewage, and deep fake technology. Now, the author says, on that deep fake stuff, I agree, quoting speech out of context is a time-honored way of smearing a political opponent. And the courts recognize that for a public figure, you're just going to have to grin and bear it and watch what you say. Deep fake is very much worse. It is quite possible with modern technology to create compelling images of someone saying something he never said in a place that he never was, doing things he would never do. That is a level of fraud that becomes criminal. Deceptive advertising is illegal and punishable by the federal government and the states. Deep fake deception is likely to be much worse and properly should be outlawed. So Obama proposes a solution to what he claims is pernicious speech. Quote, while content moderation can limit the distribution of clearly dangerous content, it doesn't go far enough. Users who want to spread disinformation have become experts at pushing right up to the line of what at least published company policies allow. Those companies, by the way, are big tech, and the dangerous information he refers to is mostly conservative commentary. Now, Obama argues for formalizing the recently developed casual partnership between government and big tech to control speech. He's saying correctly that you are dangerous to this newly allied establishment when you think for yourself. Your thinking must be done for you. The recent COVID misbehavior in the CDC, supported by big tech censorship, gives us a chilling example of what such a formalized partnership would entail. 
government or corporate fully regulated speech and thought and servitude. Without free speech, we would no longer be free citizens of a free nation. He says, free speech has been has long been the foundation of our nation and culture. This isn't just a matter of hundreds of years of practical experience. It's also a matter of hard science. Now, we're talking about the mathematical science of servo control mechanisms. Servos are ubiquitous in modern society. Your car is full of them. So is the cell phone in your pocket. You can't live without them. Servos are designed to give desired results in continuously changing environment. It's their ability to properly respond to these changes that makes these devices so valuable. Servo mechanisms work with negative feedback. And through this feedback, deviations from the desired result are detected and fed back to the steersman to correct the error. With proper design, a servo achieves the desired objective no matter how the outside world changes. Signals flowing through a servo are both positive and negative. Negative signals are essential for error correction. In some situations, the signals being delivered to the device from the outside are entirely positive. The servo servo strips off their average value or bias and thereby converts them into both, both positive and negative values. So society itself is a very is a type of very complex servo mechanism. Negative feedback is where free speech comes in. Without the ideas of the opposition, we cannot detect errors and make corrections. It's the contrast of conflicting ideas that provides the error-correcting signals needed for a democratically controlled society to be stable. The mathematics of servos tell us why. Suppose the signal in the servo is biased so that it's only one-sided. What happens is runaway positive feedback oscillation. This is what we find on the left. Think of what happens when a microphone is placed too close to a speaker. That squeal is unbearable. That's what will happen if free speech becomes as regulated as one-sided speech. Society will invariably crash. And servo mathematics tell us even more. It tells us how fast the system needs to respond to changes if it's to remain stable. If the received signal changes faster than the system can respond, the negative feedback can switch to positive and a runaway crash results. That's why a free market and rapid local decision-making is vastly superior to a slow, centralized, over-regulated economy. Now, governments always react slowly to events. In a rapidly changing environment, the slowness often produces instability. In fact, the Soviet Union fell primarily because of the slow response of its centralized economy to the changes in the outside world and its inability to respond to the changing demands of its citizenry. After all, its citizens did find out what was going on in the free world and wanted the same. Statistics is another branch of mathematics that illustrates the issue of free speech and democracy. Consider a jar of jelly beans at a county fair. Fill a jar with colorful colorful jelly beans and ask people passing by how many are in the jar. And you'll get answers ranging from a few dozen to many thousands. But the truth will lie somewhere in between. Average the guesses. The more people guessing, the more accurate the average. This experiment has been done many times, and the average always comes out to be amazingly close to the real number. And it demonstrates why a representative republic works so well as a system of government. A fair vote, and it must be fair, distills the life experience of the multitude. It's a surprisingly accurate measure of the normal expectations of society. Democracy follows the mathematical laws of statistically governed control servos to work and provide stability. Democracy provides free speech so that in the collective, any errors will be detected and corrected. 
That's a little something we ought to be thinking about as we approach these elections this coming November and again in 2024. Is free speech doing its part to keep us stabilized? And if not, why not? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is one of my sponsors. And for my listeners in southern Utah, how fortunate you are to have this wonderful family-owned business right there in your midst. I know you big manly men are saying, well, I don't ever do any sewing, and I'm not likely to start long-arm quilting or embroidery or anything like that. But uh, you know what? The, The value and the utility of a sewing machine cannot be overstated. So even if you're not the person who wants to sit there and and create uh, wonderful crafts or fix your own clothing or perhaps even fabricate more of your own clothing, it's a very, very useful skill to have. And and I, I, I sometimes, you know, find myself struggling to to make it compelling without sounding like, uh, hey, before the apocalypse comes, you should probably have yourself a, a really good solid sewing setup and all the supplies you need. But I am going to say it this way. If you're serious about self-reliance, this is one of the tools that could be extremely valuable. And you're not going to go wrong by dealing with Sewing and Quilting Center. Not only will they sell you the machines, they have a great selection from entry-level models starting at about 200 bucks up to the really top-of-the-line long-arm quilting machines that will cost considerably more. But they'll train you how to use them. They back it up with the supplies. They back it up with service. Like I say, you can't go wrong. SewingandQuiltingCenter.com All right, let's talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, why we should stop believing the people who are telling us that we're powerless. I think that that's, to me, that's one of the most pernicious falsehoods that's being pushed on us these days. Not only are you, you know, marginalized and you're you're out there on the fringes because you believe freedom is more important than things like, like, uh, we're all in this together and, and, you know, getting the vax and wearing your mask and doing what you're told and not complaining and not believing that uh, your your elected officials would ever do anything to stay in power, including breaking or bending rules. You get the picture? Only a kook would believe that. Only some insane person would believe that, and that would put you, you know, in a very tiny minority of people who should not even be able to walk down the street without others throwing trash at them. And, oh, and by the way, you're powerless. There's nothing you can do, so... You should probably just give up and either, you know, sit in silence or come over and full-throatedly start embracing what we're telling you, shouting in unison with the rest of the people sitting here chanting. Now, again, I know you wouldn't be listening to this program if, if you had even an inkling of that kind of a mindset. I've got a great article here from Annie Holmquist that makes a strong case for teaching your children the value of having a well-calibrated moral compass. Winking at disobedience, winding toward destruction. She says, training your children to obey will give them a moral compass and the discernment and character to advance the type of government that will make our nation proper. This is not about uh, creating little political creatures. She's talking about creating people who understand the difference of right and wrong well enough that they don't let government get away with buffaloing them on, uh, you have to do this, and we're right, because we're big and you're not, and... We're powerful and you're not. 
Annie Holmquist writes, a little girl sporting a blue tutu came into view the other day as I walked by a school parking lot. But it wasn't the tutu that caught my attention. It was her mother's various commands and entreaties that she was happily ignoring. It's time to go, honey. No movement. We need to go home now, came the repeated request, but the little tutu lady kept playing behind a dwindling snow pile. One, two, the increasingly frustrated mother counted. And he says, leaving the pair behind to sort out their homeward bound issues. I soon came upon another child playing while her parents looked on. Repeating the time to go command numerous times to no avail, her mother finally told her that she had one more minute to play, but within seconds she told the little girl that the minute is up completely reneging on the apparently dishonest promise just made. Now, Annie Holmquist says, look, I get it. In fact, anyone who's ever worked with little ones gets it. Children have minds of their own. They don't come by obedience naturally. Furthermore, no adult enjoys the shame and difficulty of dealing with a public tantrum. Reminds me of the meme I saw the other day of someone, you know, if you're a parent, at some point you will carry a a screaming demonic child out of a public gathering... (laughs) As they're in the middle of a tantrum. Yep, that's that's part of parenthood. Now, Annie says, the easy thing to do is just wink at the disobedience, cajoling and coddling children instead. But she says, what many of us forget, however, is that such an approach to childhood disobedience not only affects the child and the adult working with the child, but it also affects society at large in many negative ways. A fact we are seeing play out today. She says the reason it negatively affects society is that a child's failure to learn obedience to proper authorities builds distrust, confusion, and rejection of rightful authority as that child grows into an adult. Writer and speaker Elizabeth Elliott discussed this idea roughly 50 years ago in her book, Let Me Be a Woman. Here's how she said it, quote, failure to fulfill threats and promises trains a child to discount what is said to him. It trains him to lie. The parents are not to be trusted, therefore they need not be obeyed, therefore no authority is trustworthy or need be obeyed. Obedience is optional depending on convenience or inclination or obvious reward, end quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says, but such parental action or inaction not only trains a child to lie, but also trains him to believe a lie. When a child cannot count on a parent or teacher to follow through, He lives in a world of uncertainty, which creates further chaos in his life and may even confuse him enough to follow and believe other authorities who tell him further lies and lead him down ruinous paths. A child has to know know first of all and beyond any shadow of a doubt that the word spoken will be the word carried out, Elliot wrote. Threats, if you don't do this, you'll be spanked, or promises, if you pick up all your toys, you'll get a popsicle, if not carried through, are ruinous to a child's morality. And it's that, ruined, it is that ruined morality that we are experiencing today. We see it in the riotous individuals who regularly engage in smash and grabs at stores or hijack yet another car. It shows up in angry students disrespecting those who present a different viewpoint rather than their a different viewpoint than their own. It rears its head in those who pull down statues, thinking they're symbols of a racist past. And it shows up in those who fool themselves into thinking that a man can be a woman or even those who can't truthfully define what a woman is. She says, the fact is, when children don't learn how to respond rightly to and interact with their parents, their first and foremost authorities, they won't know how to respond to other authorities in the future. They thus risk being misled or abused by those authorities, or conversely, abusing authorities themselves. Annie Holmquist says, many today see our nation declining, and they wonder what can they personally do 
to help it change course? One answer, train your children to obey. Follow through not only on your threats, but also on your promises. And in doing so, you'll be raising children with a moral compass who will then have the discernment and character to advance the type of government that will make our nation prosper once again. And if I can just springboard off what she's saying here, um, you know, teaching them to obey authority and teaching them to obey you is not a matter of turning them into a bunch of little heel clickers. And you don't want to turn your kids into the kind of kid who sits there, you know, and, and is, is threatening to become a sobbing mess because nobody's telling them what they can have for breakfast this morning. They're just sitting there with a bowl in front of them and, uh, what, what can I have? I don't know what to eat. I mean, you want to raise a kid who's, you know, self-sufficient enough that, you know, at an early age they can handily go and find whatever kind of cereal or whatever they want and, you know, feel confident enough to pour the milk themselves. I realize it's going to be different with each kid. There are some five-year-olds who can't pour a gallon of milk as well as a three-year-old could. But I'll bet you the three-year-old that knows how to do it has parents who have have taught them to be more self-sufficient, taught them to trust, yes, I can do this, and I can do this correctly. And they may even have made some mistakes the first time. So I'm just, there's, there's that fine balance and I've, as I've watched my own kids grow up, you know, it's like, okay, I want them to question authority. I want them to question authority like I question authority. Not because I'm right, but because I want them to be free. Now, at the same time, I don't want kids who are always questioning my authority. But that's part of the price of it. And it comes back to something that we discussed earlier in the show, which is the difference between love and violence. If you're going to use love as your persuasion for why someone is, is to do something, that is always going to be the better way to do it. <clears throat> Persuasion is better than coercion. Even if you're trying to get someone to do the right thing. And this is where I see a lot of people kind of get wrapped around the axle. They, they don't understand. Well, but I want my kid to be a good person, so I'm going to, you know, beat the goodness into him. Or coerce the goodness out of him. I think we underestimate especially the power of example in showing what that better way is. So just for instance, you're walking through a parking lot, you see a wallet laying on the ground, and your kid is there with you. I mean, do you pick it up, check for money, tuck the bills in your pocket, and then toss the wallet back on the ground and say, well, sucks to be that person. Because the person who would do that has just taught their child a very, very powerful lesson, as opposed to the person who takes the wallet intact and makes whatever efforts necessary to reunite it with its owner. Your child sees that too. And based on how you treat it, that's going to help shape their attitudes about what's right and what's wrong in similar situations. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Once again, I want to thank the sponsors who help to make this show possible on a daily basis. I try not to I try not to weigh you down with too much of the advertising content, but it's very important to me that you know who these sponsors are, that uh, given the opportunity to do business with them, or if you don't need their business or service right at the moment, you know, to refer somebody to them, 
they really do a wonderful job of keeping the wolf away from the door so that I can focus on finding and sharing the best content that I can. It is, uh, it, I'm so, so grateful. And, and I would include HSL Ammo as one of those sponsors. I have a link, hslammo.com, right there in my show notes under sponsors. Also, lifesavingfood.com. This is food storage and preparedness items. Click on either one. Click on both of them. Take a look around, and if you find something that's useful, please consider doing business with them. Well, if the past couple of years haven't opened your eyes to the effects of propaganda in manipulating the masses, you might want to check your pulse or put a mirror in front of your nose and see if you're still fogging it. I've got an article here from Ryan Matters. This is from OffGuardian.com. The Psychology of Manipulation, Six Lessons from the Master of Propaganda. And this is some wonderful background on Edward L. Bernays. If you don't know that name, this is one you should probably understand because a lot of the information that you and I have directed at us throughout the day is being directed at us in ways and using methods prescribed by Edward Bernays, who literally wrote the book Propaganda back in 1928. I mean, he was recognized as the father of public relations. He was the guy responsible, one of the guys responsible for selling World War I to the American public by branding it as a war that was necessary to make the world safe for democracy. And during the 1920s, Bernays consulted for a number of major corporations hoping to boost their influence through expertly crafted marketing campaigns aimed at influencing public opinion. And it was in 1928 that Bernays published his famous book, Propaganda, in which he outlined the theories behind his successful public relations endeavors. Now, the book provides insights into the phenomenon of crowd psychology and outlines effective methods for manipulating people's habits and incomes. I mean, for a book that's almost 100 years old, propaganda could not be more relevant today. In fact, its relevance is testament to the unchanging nature of human psychology. And one of the key takeaways of the book is that mind control is an important aspect of any democratic society. In fact, Bernays maintains that without the conscious and intelligent manipulations of the organized habits and opinions of the masses, democracy democracy simply could not work. Here's how he put it. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. This is a logical result of the way in which our democratic society is organized. Vast numbers of human beings must cooperate in this manner if they are to live together as a smoothly functioning society. End quote. So according to Bernays, those doing the governing constitute an invisible ruling class that understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. Now, in his book, Propaganda, Bernays draws on the work of Gustave Le Bon, Wilfred Trotter, Walter Lippmann, and Sigmund Freud, who, by the way, was his uncle, outlining the power of mass psychology and how it may be used to manipulate the group mind. Quote, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it? End quote. So here are six key insights from the book and it will show you how this book in many ways is a, a playbook being used by the global cryptocracy to process the my, the group mind of the masses. Number one, if you manipulate the leader of a group, the people will follow. 
Bernays tells us one of the easiest ways to influence the thoughts and actions of large numbers of people is to first influence their leaders. Saying if you can influence the leaders, either with or without their conscious cooperation, you automatically influence the group which they sway. That's one of the most firmly established principles of mass psychology, that the group mind doesn't think. Rather, it acts according to impulses, habits, and emotions. And when deciding on a certain course of action, the first impulse is follow the example of a trusted leader. This is the exact method of influencing people that has been horrendously bad for us through the the course of the pandemic. This is why the horrendously inaccurate epidemiological models created by Niels Ferguson formed the basis for Prime Minister Boris Johnson's lockdown policies. Once Johnson was convinced of the need to lock down and mask up, the people gladly followed. Second insight, words are powerful. The key to influencing a group is clever use of language. Certain words and phrases are associated with certain emotions, symbols, and reactions. And Bernays tells us that through clever, careful use of language, one can manipulate the emotions of a group and thereby influence their perceptions and actions. By playing upon an old cliche or manipulating a new one, the propagandist can sometimes swing a whole mass of group emotions. So this clever use of language was employed throughout COVID-19 pandemic to great effect. An obvious example is when the definition of vaccine was changed to include injections utilizing experimental mRNA technology. You see, the word vaccine is associated in the public mind with a certain picture, that of a safe, proven medical intervention that's not only life-saving, but absolutely necessary. So if government had been telling people, go out and get your gene therapy, the vast majority of the public would likely have questioned the motives behind such a campaign. They'd feel extremely skeptical because the phrase gene therapy is not associated with the same images, emotions, and feelings as the word vaccine. Same goes for the word pandemic. That's a word that's generally associated with fear, death, chaos, and emergency, thanks to Hollywood and all the virus films it's released over the years. Number three, any medium of communication is also a medium for propaganda. Whether it's phone, radio, print, or social media, any system of communication is nothing more than a means of transmitting information. And Bernays Bernays reminds us, any such means of communication is also a channel for propaganda. He put it like this, there is no means of human communication which may not also be a means of deliberate propaganda. Now, he goes on to stress that a good propagandist must always keep abreast of new forms of communication so that they may co-opt them as a means of deliberate propaganda. So systems that most people would associate with freedom of speech and democracy are none other than the means of circulating propaganda. Facebook fact-checkers, big tech censorship, YouTube's COVID banners would certainly fall into that category. Other examples of this include the recent algorithm updates made by various search engines, including Google and DuckDuckGo, to penalize Russian websites. Although this should come as no surprise, Google's been engaging, engaging in this kind of shadow propaganda for many years. Observation number four, reiterating the same idea over and over, creates habits and convictions. Now, although Bernays terms this a technique used by the old propagandists, he nonetheless recognizes its usefulness. It was one of the doctrines of the reaction psychology that a certain stimulus often repeated would create a habit or that the mere reiteration of an idea would create a conviction. So repeating the same idea or the same mantra again and again is a form of neuro-linguistic programming aimed at instilling certain concepts or emotions into the subconscious mind. Indeed, people who are feeling sad or depressed are often advised to repeat to themselves an uplifting saying or affirmation, 
And there are many examples of this simple yet effective technique being used to great effect over the past few years. Think of Q's Trust the Plan or the globalist favorite Build Back Better or the incessant repetition of that twisted phrase Trust the Science. Included in this category of the 24-7 in your face death statistics and case numbers aimed at promoting the illusion of a pandemic. Number five, things are not desired for their intrinsic worth, but rather for the symbols they represent. Here's how Bernays put it. A thing may be desired not for its intrinsic worth or usefulness, but because he has unconsciously come to see it in, in a symbol, in it rather, a symbol of something else, a, de- a desire for which he is ashamed to admit to himself. So, for example, masks are symbols of compliance. Everyone knows they don't work, but they wear them because of their desire to fit in and to be seen as an upstanding citizen who follows the rules. COVID-19 injections also are a symbol, and many people choose to get them because they have the desire to avoid being called anti-vaxxer or a conspiracy theorist. And finally, number six, one can manipulate individual actions by creating circumstances that modify group customs. This is how Bernays puts it. What are the true reasons why the purchaser is planning to spend his money on a new car instead of a new piano? He buys a car because it is at the moment the group custom to buy cars. The modern propagandist therefore sets to work to create circumstances which will modify that custom. So, for example, why all of a sudden does everyone stand with Ukraine? See, according to Bernays, it's not because there's a war going on and innocent people need our love and support but rather because it's the new group custom to do so. Oh, I know, that's uh, that's that's got a sting for some folks, but at the beginning of the COVID saga and then the Russian-Ukraine war, the media were very quick to circulate stories of celebrities catching COVID and urging people to stay home or public figures condemning Russia and calling for stricter sanctions. This is just a call to be aware of the many ways that uh, people will try to manipulate your mind and then to resist it with everything you've got. This is The Brian Hyde Show.